A note in his diary, 1930, gave us a five-stanza dreamlike drama by Xantium with resplendent images. A walking mummy, flames at the street corners where the soul is purified, birds of hammered gold singing in the golden trees, in the harbor, dolphins offering their backs to the waiting dead that they may carry them to paradise. Packed with symbols, illusion and visual strangeness, Yeats creates a poetic universe we can enter into and experience imaginatively. Along with Sailing to Byzantium, published earlier in 1925, we hear the echo, the texture and musicality of repeated words, ambiguous phrases, allusions to myth, real, unreal happenings in these poems. They are suffused with the magic of the poet's lifelong fascination for the ancient culture of Byzantium. He once said, I think if I could be given a month of antiquity and leave to spend it where I chose, I would spend it in Byzantium. I think that in early Byzantium, maybe never before or since in recorded history, religious, aesthetic and practical life were one that architects and artificers spoke to the multitude and the few alike. The Byzantium poems spin and whirl upon the clash and struggle of the spiritual with the material, the ideal with the physical, and their reconciliation in art. The imagination is paramount. It has the unifying power. This conflict between the natural and the transcendent and the value of art in its blend and fusion reaches its sublimest expression in the Byzantium poems. In art, Yeats finds the perfect balance between matter and spirit. Sculpture, an art which is pure form, the most like Apollo, the god of light, reason, order, harmony, logic, and music, is the pure Dionysus, tremendous energy, the god of wine and revelry, emotion and ecstasy. Nietzsche thought that Greek culture bridged the dichotomy and so Yeats finds in Byzantine culture and art also a balanced play of both these drives. Sailing to Byzantium is Yeats's definitive statement of the agony of old age, the need for the solace, the anchor, the comfort of imagination, spirituality and intellect. That is the only way to retain the vital essence of an individual. The heart, he says, is fastened to a dying animal, the body. He wants to leave the country of the young. It's a country scarred socially, Politically, the entire landscape is shattered by the First World War. Those dying generations haunted him. An entire age group in Europe which was decimated in the devastation. The men who were taken for granted. And now the natural world has become a victim 
of man's inordinate greed and insensitivity. The vast schools of fish in the ocean and the singing birds in the trees. Men continue to ravage, defile the beauty of the natural world. They finally come full circle to destroying, assaulting their own species. The trauma and shock which followed the sudden explosion of violence, death, the size and scale of the war must have been overwhelming. And so are the Byzantine poems. Yeats's solution is to leave the country, leave the country of the young and travel, travel to Byzantium, the centre of European civilization, the source of a spiritual philosophy. Here, the sages in the city's famous golden shimmering mosaic could become the singing inspiration of his own soul. He hopes the sages will appear in fire, release him from his body into a paradise outside beyond time. He would then exist forever like an exquisite work of art in the artifice of eternity. No decay, no death, only transcendence and bliss. In the finale, he affirms that once liberated, he would never assume a natural form. Rather, he would become a golden bird, perched on a golden tree, singing of the past, the present and the future. The romantic poet Keats comes to our mind with his lines on the Grecian urn. Thou still unravished bride of quietness, thou foster child of slow time. And then again the lines, when old age shall this generation waste, thou shalt remain in midst of other woe. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty, that's all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. Does the poet choose idealism or materialism? Perhaps both, perhaps neither. One cannot know of the world of being. Whatever is begotten, born and dies. A terse phrase, the adroit skill how in one dexterous stroke, fish, flesh, fowl, and we are reminded of the sudden loss of life, men, especially the aged. Is there a refuge? Where then should men look for? Look for life and inspiration? The poet answers, the unaging intellect, literature, art, culture. Can they find this in their own country? Alas, no. People had begun to lose faith in intellectualism. The anguish of the war tore away all the certainties, extinguished the robust faith of the Enlightenment, the optimism of the Victorian era. How does Yeats strike a different note? in this realism of the lost generations. Come to T.S. Eliot, Scott Fitzgerald, 
What poetic figures do they portray? Well, a kind of helpless intellectualism, disconnected, fragmented, incoherent souls. What about Yeats? Ah, the poet seeks freedom. Stifled as he is by the lusty sensual music of the modern young, snuggled in their lover's arms, Yeats wants to break free of these physical limitations. He wants to soar into Byzantium, embark on his own spiritual journey to renew, reinvigorate his passion for life. Time for a pause. Is there more to the opening eight lines of Sailing to Byzantium? Don't they set a controversial argument of time, eternity, body, soul, a kind of resistance into action? Because on the surface, he rejects Ireland. He rejects the land of body and time, transient, temporal. No country for old men. But the words betray an arresting picture on the whole. Is there a trace of ambivalence? Is the speaker's dismissal of Ireland half-hearted? The world of nature teems with life, strength, vigour, doesn't it? Enticingly happy human beings, lovers, seductive music, the seas rich in life, trees and greenery. But then again, those dying generations, a recurring image of death. Isn't there renewal, regeneration, rebirth too? We sense from these lines a tension of opposites, movement away from Ireland and towards monuments of unaging intellect and the counter-movement towards Ireland with its temporal flux. Nevertheless, it's beauty too. So here we have the intellectual and the temporal and there is a tension between them. So we have what Nietzsche referred to as Apollonian and Dionysian. What follows is the shriveled, lifeless form of dismal age and the soul's deliverance. Sages from the sacred flame are urged to forsake stillness and burn in a gyre. Be the singing masters to his soul. There's no dichotomy here. They spiral through time, the divine, eternal and the worldly. The mundane, they meet through art, indicated here as song by music. Finally, the poet entreats the sages to consume his heart, to consume his gross material being away through purgatorial fire. A dying animal, yet sick with desire. The poles do not fly apart, but are held together. Attached to nature, even as he prays to escape it. Artifice of eternity secures its connection with the primal materials, the elements out of which art is made. Art as creator of eternity, be it through pure form, architecture, 
of pure emotion, sensuality, ecstasy as song or artifact, artistic rapture between nature and transcendence, each is inseparable from the other. We have a golden bird keeps a drowsy emperor awake and he will sing of what's past, passing or to come, all encompassed by his artistic vision. The poet describes himself as filled with hopes and youthful desires and aspirations, hence at odds with his frail, age-ridden physical frame. Where does he find the ultimate beauty, the divine perfection? He finds it, he can find it in knowledge, creativity, craft, workmanship, artistry.